Hello everyone, welcome to Tennis with an Accent in an Ideal World. Yeah, I know I've said this before, so I will even cut that part out. This is Sakeb hosting the show and Murta Tunga is back as we continue to celebrate Wimbledon. And uh, something we did seven weeks ago, we did a French Open retro live episode and this is what we have in mind. And after much deliberation, me and Mert have decided to relive the 2006 men's edition of the championships. And it's going to be the similar exercise. We'll do time travel and we'll be back the Monday after Federer has won his fourth Wimbledon by beating Rafael Nadal. And we'll be discussing the championship that we don't know, you know, the next day what happened. So if you bear with us and if you enjoyed this, this will be something, uh, a very honest cross-examination, uh, discounting everything we've known since that has happened in the tennis world. Uh, so, Mert, uh, welcome back to the show. Uh, that was the intro we planned. And uh, if you're ready, we can go back uh, 14 years in time. Yes, we should We should be back again like we did last time. We, uh, I actually received from my friends, at least my uh, tennis pro friends, uh, good feedback on that. They thought it was uh, uh, entertaining and interesting to listen to. And uh, we can do the same now to 2006 Wimbledon final, which is... Um, in Saki, we probably picked 2006 because 2008 has already been, you know, dis- discussed uh, uh, in detail many, many times, and uh, 2006 has a special role in the in the in the in the history of tennis in the sense that the Rafa Roger rivalry gets established. But uh, yeah, we'll get uh, we'll get we'll get to that when we beam back to that Monday. And again, I'll also add the disclaimer: uh, the attempt is to be honest, as we thought of certain young players because we don't know what the future holds for them. So Novak Djokovic, Andy Murray, Tomas Burdick, Marcos Bagdatis, uh, and current contemporaries of Federer like uh, Andy Roddick will get mentions, and those mentions will be only applicable of the information that we knew then. That's not to say, you know, because we are not here in the exercise of capturing or making predictions. So it's not to offend any fan uh, that we are shortchanging a glittering career because... Let's face it, it's Monday uh, at uh, Wimbledon uh, after the championship has been decided. So let's take Yeah, this. We're, we're, we're literally beaming to back to, I believe, July 10th, 2006. That's where we're going to find ourselves in a little bit. Hey, Mert. So Wimbledon just concluded yesterday. Uh, let's do a recap. A lot unfolded on the men's side. Uh, some may say Roger Federer versus Rafael Nadal is officially a rivalry now. Uh, there's a lot of uh, talk about changing of the guard, not at the top, but there's a lot of new talent on the men's side. The surge led by uh, Andy Murray, Novak Djokovic, Tomas Burdick is already a seeded player. Then we have a few talented players like Marcus Bagdad is slightly older, making a run in Australia. So there's plenty that happened this year leading up to this two weeks. And now these two weeks have given a new dimension to the men's game. So where do you want to start with, Mert? No, yeah, I think you you nailed it on the, the in the head actually right in the uh, in the beginning, Sakib. And I think it was your third or fourth sentence where you said, "Now we have an established rivalry." And I believe this 2006 Wimbledon, the one that ended yesterday with Federer defeating Nadal, combined with uh, the the Roland Garros final, announces the arrival of a very exciting rivalry, or rather the rivalry was, they were already playing each other, but establishes this 
as a bona fide rivalry that could possibly live up to the standards of of the of some of the legendary rivalries we've had before, like Borg McEnroe or uh, or, or Becker Edberg or um, or Sampras Agassi. So that that remains to be seen. But this is a very very exciting day in the sense that we now in men's tennis that has been in stagnation uh, for the for the last uh, you know since the since the turn of the century, in my opinion. Uh, these two guys, the way they're going, can uh, can lift it up to the next level. And uh, you mentioned Agassi. We'll definitely uh, talk about his legacy at Wimbledon. He's calling time on his career. It's pretty official now. U.S. Open will be his last tournament. So we'll talk about his legacy at Wimbledon, uh, the three matches he played this year. But let's talk about Roger and uh, Rafael, uh, the rivalry. This was the eighth match. And uh, first in grass, and Federer was coming in with a 1-6 deficit. And Federer is clearly the best player in the world, but you can't beat the guy who's beginning to challenge you for the biggest title of the world. So uh, a lot riding in this match for Federer. And uh, you, you, we've all seen that, how it unfolded. Dubai is a pretty hard, a fast hard court, and Nadal got the better of Federer there. And then uh, uh, two or three matches in clay, I think Monte Carlo, Rome, which is a masterpiece, and then Roland Garros, where Federer was going for the Roger Slam. So, so Bert, I mean, in terms of significance, you know, how important was this match for Federer? I mean, we know it's in the books now. Well, it was it was a lot more important for him, and it was also a lot more important to simply say that there is actually a rivalry because let's face it, until um, until. Um, Yesterday, I'm not sure that we can call this a rivalry. You know, Federer is the clear number one in the world. You know, the results, overall results show, show that, the ATP calendar results. But uh, between him and Rafa so far, seven matches, six and one, and the only match that Federer won was a miraculous comeback from two sets and a breakdown uh, in Miami. Uh, you can't really call it a rivalry. Nadal was dominating Federer, and, uh, and, and he, he, he beat him in, on hard courts. Uh, twice he, he he beat him on clay court just this year alone three times coming into this final so this was kind of uh, the last stand for Roger if you want to call it a rivalry at all and uh, and uh, Federer manages to come through and in the process in my opinion sets up um, uh, 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 kind of stamps the uh, the official uh, rivalry uh, title onto the onto this matchup and it's a great matchup because you got one player who likes to attack or who likes to at least finish the points himself or be in control. And you got another player who's a terrific baseline, a great counterpuncher, gets a lot of ball, balls back. And it's a good contrast of styles. And, 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 and if necessary, he can, he, you know, I'm talking about Rafa, he can even hit balls on the run, uh, winners on the run. So it's, you know, we're to, they both have great footwork. So we're talking about a great contrast of styles a la Borg McEnroe. And um, they could, we could have many, many great matches coming up between these two guys. But the, to get the win here for Federer was extremely important. I mean, just just to underline the uh, the, the situation, you know, Roger came into this match fifty five and four on the year. All four of those losses came to Nadal, and 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 all came in finals. You know, three on clay, one on hard. And here we are, Roger steamrolls to the finals, not losing a set. I mean, he only got extended to a tiebreaker only once against Maou. 
Uh, Nadal, on the other hand, was not a uh, was not a guarantee in the finals. I mean, many people questioned if he could make it to the finals here. He uh, he he had to work early. He had to work hard early. Uh, had a close straight set victory against Bogdanovich, uh, a five set scorcher against Kendrick. Kendrick coming back from two sets to love, but then his road turns much less bumpy in the second week, where he plays Arakli Labatse and Yarko Nieminen back-to-back to reach the semis, then plays a five-star match against Baghdadis in the semis, winning in straight sets again. So, you know, you had this you had this feeling like, oh, here we go again. Rafa is going to get uh, Roger one more time. You know, the head-to-head is six and one. And a um, couple of things happened during the final that, 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 uh, that put Federer ahead and, and Federer ended up winning. But but it was close. It was close. And and uh, if you're a Federer fan, you probably went out to the match quite nervous uh, this time around. But uh, Federer wins. So we have a we have a bona fide rivalry. Yeah, and if you look at some of those matches, especially the Dubai match where Federer was expected to win, uh, it's a faster hard court, and Federer won seven more points and still ended up losing that match. And and then they played a real stellar match in Rome. Where again, Federer wins five more points and loses the match in five sets, which some are saying already is match of the year. So, uh, how how do I even phrase this? Federer is no doubt clearly the best player in the game, but then uh, I'm repeating myself already, and the podcast is like what ten minutes old that he keeps losing, uh, you know, all these close matches to his newest rival, who is the challenger to his throne. But then on the other hand, Nadal has lost four matches to different men. He couldn't finish against Hewitt, so he had to retire at Queens. Then he's been beaten by, I think, Moya in Key Biscayne and lost to James Blake at Indian Wells and Clermont in Marseille. So Nadal's not dominating the field, but he's the most dominant player you know we've seen in clay. Like uh, He's won two French Opens and uh, is not losing a match in those two months. And now he plays a Wimbledon final when most people thought his game may not be suited for grass. And here we are. You know, they played... Uh, quite a spectacular match if you take the first set out it was pretty close and and of course Federer uh, came with the goods when it mattered so Samert uh, if you were just to uh, dissect this match was there a turning point in this match Uh, was Nadal too nervous in the beginning or walk us through the four sets you know there there was but uh, but Sakib you again you said a very key uh, sentence there towards the end you said Federer came through in the big points, and yes, uh, that that's the reason why, the, the, despite the stats that you gave in the beginning, you know, in, in their matches, Federer winning more points than than Nadal. Nadal was the one winning because he was winning the close points, and then whenever things got tight, either Federer himself also got tight uh, and 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 couldn't put it away. Rome final, for example, is a great example uh, where. Uh, where in the matches, you know, Federer missed forehands that he made earlier in that match. Uh, whereas, uh, the, whereas here in this Wimbledon final particularly, apart from one game, a key game in the second set, in my opinion, Federer is the one that, that came through. And, uh, you know, and, it's, and, and just, just remember that Nadal came into this match quite motivated too. He said, apparently he said to the journalist early in the week, I didn't hear this, but that uh, that grass was his favorite surface that uh, and that but yet he had not made it past the fourth round in uh, in any major actually except the french until this tournament and um so you know nadal came into the finals clicking on all cylinders too in, in his last three matches 
He never faced a break point against uh, Agassi, for example, who's the best returner in the game. He served 18 aces. So let's move on, you know, bringing all that into this match. He goes out, and then Federer comes out firing and wins the first set 6-0, which, is, uh, which was unexpected. You know, if you had to probably ask 100 people, more than 50 of them would, give, would, would say Federer will win. He was the favorite. But I don't think that any of them would say he would win a set 6-0 in this final. But, but yet it happened. You know, Federer came, uh, came out, played very well, especially the last three games of the first set. In the very beginning, the first game or two, maybe it could have gone both ways, but Federer wins uh, those two games. And then from there on, he just goes on a roll. And, um, but then in the second set, the same thing that took place at uh, Roland Garros takes place here. Now, if you remember at Roland Garros, Federer won the first set 6-1. And then there was a game early in the second set. It might have been the first or second game. I can't remember. But, uh, but this is the game that Federer all of a sudden makes some easy errors. Should have won. Had two or three chances to win. Didn't win the game. And, uh, and Nadal goes up a break and never looks back from there. Well, here we are. You know, Federer again wins the first set easy here. But then goes down to love in the second set. And Nadal actually hung on to the break lead until 5-4, until he served for the second set. And this is the game where I think, you know, Federer won most of the big points in the match, if you if you count them all. But this is the one game that I thought Rafa uh, broke down. Rafa's game broke down. He probably, I mean, he's in control of the match at that point. You know, he's leading 5-4. He's Confident. In fact, uh, for those who are curious and who have the match in hand, go see the 3-2-15 all rally, a 23-shot rally in the second set, and you will see how much Rafa is pushing Roger around at that point. So he goes up 5-4, and in that game, he goes up 15-love, and you think he's going to hold easy again and win the second set 6-4, but then he turns around and plays several terrible points in a row and, and it turns out to be his worst game of the match probably worse than not probably i'm sure it's worse than any of the six games that he lost in the first set he gets a short ball on the love 15 point hits an aggressive forehand but instead of following it to the net he backs up and stays back which is surprising because he's been coming to the net more than roger until the finals and uh, and and he then you know backs up and gives Roger a chance to get in the point and misses a misses a, just a routine forehand, not a routine one, but just a regular baseline forehand. And then at 15:30 he double faults, and then at 15:40 and at the break point makes another routine forehand error and he gets broken. Now why is this so important? Because then he got the five all and and Roger, you know, renewed his energy. You could tell and he started really you know coming coming down on Nadal being aggressive and and in the tiebreaker uh, Nadal he put Nadal under a lot of pressure you know Nadal made a couple of unusual errors maybe from 3-3 on in the tiebreaker but Roger was the one putting pressure on Nadal at that at that point but why is that 5-4 game so important because well in this in this in the six or on the seven matches that they played until this point whenever they split the first set first two sets which is five out of those seven times Nadal won all five of those matches. So to, to, for, uh, you know, for, for Nadal to not win that second set was crucial, crucial for his chances to win. And once Roger won that second set, I, I think everyone pretty much uh, 
felt that uh, there was very little chance that Rafa would come back and win in five, even even after winning the uh, the, the the third set. Uh, you know, Rafa winning the third set, and uh, and then in the fourth set, at um, to, uh, there's one note that I would like to give Sakib is that uh, if you noticed, what's good about Rafa Nadal coming on and and establishing a rivalry with you know in the last two years with Roger Federer also is that he's got a lot of uh, he's got he's he's starting to have a good fan following, a very strong fan following. Uh, in the in fact, in, at Wimbledon. At the late stages of the third set of this match, you will see the crowd clearly going pro Rafa. You know, not only because they, they, of course, the fact that they want a fourth set has to do something with that, but the fact that he got that much of a cheer, you know, that that, that much of a pro uh, pro Rafa crowd towards the end of the third set shows that he's uh, the, the crowd likes him. You know, and he and he wants some hearts at Wimbledon. His fan base is is growing in uh, at Wimbledon too. And uh, okay, so moving on to the fourth set, uh, two-one Federer on serve at 30-all. Nadal has a forehand lineup lined up, and there's a little bit of a wind that picks up at that point. It's it, because the, there is a swirling wind that keeps coming and going, and he misses the forehand, and uh, and then I think the next point when he's down a break point, he uh, he has a high forehand volley that he misses out, and uh, and Federer w- wins that game, goes up three-one, and then. He never looks back from there on. But at that point, Rafa is constantly playing under pressure because Roger has put so much pressure on him for you know over two hours of tennis through uh, through three or four sets, and and he never really got got the lead. He never could uh, you know catch up to Roger on the scoreboard or in terms of uh, or in terms of court position. Hmm. Uh, so let me ask you about this. Uh, uh, if two weeks ago uh, somebody looked at Nadal's draw and asked you if he's going to make the final. How confident were you? Because now it's easy to see what he can play. He can deliver the goods. But from a coach's point of view, how do you like his movement? He's definitely comfortable at the net. He comes on his own terms, but he has the finishing ability. So uh, how how much of a surprise was this uh, result of his for you? Uh, I wouldn't call it a surprise, but I, I didn't see. I did. I definitely didn't automatically put his name in the final either. You know, you and and you would have to be a really uh, strong, strong Rafael Rafael Nadal fan to say to yourself before to before the tournament starts, "Well, my man is going to be in the final." You would have to be a fan to say that. Objectively speaking, you can you you know you nobody could really say he's going to reach the final for sure. Okay, we're still again we're talking about someone who has not made it past fourth round. Uh, in any any of the majors except the French, so you know you didn't expect that. Now uh, you know, in fact, when he played um, Robert Kendrick and went down two sets to love, and then uh, and I believe in the third set Kendrick saved two set points and got to got to the to the tiebreaker. I actually thought Kendrick was going to win there that match because uh, you know Kendrick kept putting pressure on Nadal in that second round match. 7-6, 3-6, he wins the first two sets. He wins the second set even more in, in a more dominant fashion than the first. And then in the third set, they go to a tiebreaker again. Kendrick won the first set in the tiebreaker. They go to a tiebreaker, but the way they go to a tiebreaker is after Rafa uh, cannot capitalize on two set points. So at that point, I actually thought Kendrick was going to win. But he didn't. Now Rafa played a great tiebreaker, so took it to a fourth set. And then in the fourth set at 4-5, 
twice Kendrick comes within two points of winning the match. And in one of them, I thought he, he could have, you know, Rafa had a second serve on a deuce point. And Kendrick uh, had a chance to hit big and come to the net behind it. He did return big, but didn't return it to one of the corners, kind of returned it towards the middle of the court to Rafa's forehand, despite hitting big, and didn't follow it up to the net. And uh, Rafa ended up winning and then came back and won in five sets. But Sakib, he the way Rafa played in the fourth round, quarterfinal, and semifinal, he completely deserved to be in the final. And the way he played, I am sure, uh, made him a serious threat against Roger in the finals, considering their uh, their past uh, rivalry. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, you know, Federer is mentally, you know, quite strong himself and doesn't really give much out there. But I'm sure the Rome loss and then the Roland Garros opportunity where he had a chance to win all four. Uh, I'm sure all of this was weighing heavily. Oh, uh, you course, know, he's, a, he's like Borg. He doesn't show much out there, at least the new Federer. I mean, the young Federer was known to smash rackets all over uh, the court and, you know, pretty temperamental. But mm-hmm. uh, so now let's talk about the man who won. So Federer has won eight majors now, uh, fourth Wimbledon. Uh, you've seen quite a few former champions uh, there's a lot of comparisons about his game, the grace. And in, in a way, it's good that Nadal's keeping the conversation very honest. But if you just purely look at Wimbledon and the way Federer has played, and former greats like Sampras, Borg, McIndroe, Becker, where, where would you put Federer? I know it's hypothetical, and Federer's still pretty young. A lot of chapters to be written. But what you've seen so far, uh, how do you measure him? Because that's a conversation that's happening everywhere. Every bar stool conversation is the American uh, analogy, coining the term GOAT. Uh, that's creeping in in our talks, but just st- strictly talking Wimbledon. Uh, yeah. How do you measure him with those four guys I uh, placed? Well, uh, in terms of numbers, yet he may not be at the, at the level of those four guys. You know, he doesn't have uh, Borg has five in a row. Uh, Federer now has four in a row. Four in a row. Sampras has uh, uh, six titles, I believe. Or is it seven? Seven. Seven titles. Yes, yeah, seven Wimbledon titles. So he's not there yet. But he, if, if you're going to ask me about his game, his, his game is more complete than those guys. He's got a more complete uh, all-around game than uh, than Bjorn Borg got, uh, does. And this is this from someone who thinks Bjorn Borg is one of the best players he's ever seen. Uh, he's got a more complete game than Pete Sampras. You know, if we're, if we're going to compare just one stroke to another, he may not be ahead of... Uh, uh, say, for example, Pete Sampras in one or two departments, but overall his game is more complete than all the all the players that you just mentioned. So, yes, if you, in terms of the question, does he have potential to be to be in the same pedestal as those guys and eventually pass them? Yes, he does. You know that remains to be seen, but he does. And, and why is he so dominant? Again, he's a pretty gifted player, uh, and he's pretty aggressive. He grew up in the Sampras, uh, I in the Sampras, the Beckers, and the Edbergs. But now, Sermon Wally is kind of been transitioned out. The courts at Wimbledon, you can see the baseline gets worn out, uh, unlike the past years when you would see the, the the net area would be worn out. So, why is it such a different matchup for anyone not named Nadal? I mean, what what are we seeing here? Well, you. Yeah, you just you just touched you just uh, touched on it actually very uh, very uh, slightly. He's you know he used to serve in volley uh, in some of his older matches at Wimbledon. You can see him serve in volley, and now he de- you know he doesn't necessarily serve in volley and stays back in place. So he's he the first asset is his adaptability. He's able to adapt his game to all, to every surface, and he does. 
you know, he's, he's, he's a very good player on every single surface. So far, his results show that grass seems to be his uh, favorite surface. But Roger can, can win on any surface. He's already shown that. And so that's, that's number one. Number two, and, and I don't think this gets mentioned enough, his footwork is phenomenal. I mean, you, you saw some of the points that he played against Rafa, who has great footwork himself, you know, when they engaged in some of the, um, you know, some of the, some of the rallies. I mean, some of the running forehand uh, hard hits that Roger pulled off are, are, are incredible. You know, for example, if I'll give you, I'll give you one example, or, or the listeners, if they have, if they can go to the match and quickly watch it after the, after the, after our talk. You know, uh, if you want to see Roger at the summit of his footwork. Uh, watch the break point that he wins to go up two love in the beginning of the ma- in, in the beginning of the match in the second game. The, the, this footwork is just outrageous. Now Rafa hit some shots that should have been winners against other people, and Roger not only got to them and uh, but but hit, nailed them back to the point where Rafa found himself in trouble immediately. So he can also counter punch. Yeah, I remember the point in the first or second game when Federer stretched wide in the forehand, and he not only he reaches there, he comes back with interest. And that's, puts, so that's the one I'm yeah. talking about. The, you, you, that's exactly the one I'm talking about. Yeah. So, Mert, again, I'm, I'm a fan. I mean, unlike you, I have I don't have the uh, pedigree, you know, uh, of the experience of tour and knowing the tennis that's played there. So, there's a lot of conversation about how strings are also changing tennis. I mean, this has happened after the Sampras years, and now Federer Nadal. What we're seeing here, these guys have the ability to pretty much retrieve dead ball sometime and then neutralize a very losing position in a rally and has tennis changed that much again uh, we know the surfaces have changed uh, but is the racket string technology you know a big feature that you know the conversation is shifting compared to what uh, say seven years ago what sampras was playing yes yes in my opinion it has changed a lot and, and you have to you have to combine everything together and it didn't happen overnight or in one or two years but it happened over a few, <clears throat> over a period of. Uh, if you want to consider the racket changes, you can even say you can even include a period of two decades, where it started where first rackets started changing. They became more and more powerful. Then strings joined them. We went from gut to man-made strings, synthetic bass strings, or uh, uh, and um, and they became that you know they gave they they allowed players to hit the ball harder. And then seeing how much harder the players were hitting and how much power was overtaking tennis, the the powers that be decided that they wanted to make some adjustments on the surface and especially the the most undertalked factor, the balls themselves. And the you know balls became a little bit heavier, fluffier, and the courts Wimbledon got uh, slowed down twice in the late 90s once, and then again in the very beginning of the 2000s. To, to compensate for, for all the power that was coming from the technology. So, yes, um, this is why you don't have ser- – one of the reasons why you don't have servant volleyers anymore at uh, Wimbledon. And, uh, and you know, it went, that change went quickly from, uh, from, <clears throat> excuse me, from uh, mid-'90s to, to now. You know, you, you hardly have any servant volleyers anymore. And the ones that can do it, you know, don't do it a lot. Do, do it do it less than they used to do it Roger being an example and um, so yes the game has changed quite a lot and 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 I do I don't think it's an exaggeration to say 
that someone like Sampras, as as great a player as he is, would have probably a bit of a tougher time winning today seven Wimbledon seven Wimbledon titles. I would. This is of course speculation, Sakib. Okay, but I would also say that uh, someone like Borg, winning five Wimbledons in a row back in the um, you know back in the late seventies, is phenomenal with how fast the surface was back then and the balls and how light the balls were. So you know it's 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 a back and forth type of thing. But yes, there's a there's quite a big divergence in the in the game between now and then. Sure. So I mean. I was planning to bring him a little later in the show, but I think with the surface uh, changes, uh, I think it's fair to say Andre Agassi, who didn't play Wimbledon for two years, uh, and this was his last Wimbledon, would 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 have loved to play, you know, majority of his Wimbledon on this grass because you know he could have such a say from the baseline when he when he won in '92. Grass was totally different, and even in '99. In 2000, 2001, when he was making the business weekend at the championship, grass was playing a lot different than it is today. So where do you want to start with Agassi? Because I have uh, I have a few things to say. But uh, fire Oh, yeah. Away. Oh, yeah. No, we can, we, can, we can move on to Agassi. And, and, you know, one thing that I should add before we go on there, one thing that I should add uh, to, to our general discussion so far about Roger and and uh, you know the change of the game, et cetera. Even with all the all the ch- all the game changes and Roger perhaps staying back more than in the past, his tactic, you know, his starting game plan against Rafa in the final, walking onto the court was uh, was quite masterful. You know, the amounts of shots hit per point on his service games at Roland Garros in that final at Roland Garros, the amount of shots hit per point on his service games. They hovered ab- uh, above six shots per per point. Here at uh, at Wimbledon final, it stayed at three shots per point. So he he cut that in half. Now I, that that's how aggressive he was playing. Now I expected that. I expected him to be more aggressive. But what I did not expect is that he would serve above seventy percent of his first serve to the outside on the ad side to Nadal's forehand, pushing him to the outside of the court. Whereas in the Roland Garros final, he hit more than 60% of his first serves to the tee, making Rafa hit a backhand return, you know, from the inside of the court. I'm talking about the advantage side. So, you know, he made some, uh, you know, that's another thing about Roger. His his IQ is quite high, both, by by the way, Roger and Rafa have both high IQs. But when you combine an all-around complete game with high IQ, and someone who likes to play aggressive, it becomes very difficult to beat that player on Wimbledon. Thus, Roger's ability to halt Rafa's dominance of the rivalry this time on grass. So he held fort. Now moving on to Agassi. You are right about uh, um, his, uh, his, uh, his game, taking the balls early, returning. He doesn't move that well anymore. You know he has he has issues with his back, and he's not definitely he's definitely not chasing balls down as well or retrieving them on the stretch as well uh, as he used to. And uh, and in his first two rounds, uh, it, this showed a little bit. Although he played himself into form in his uh, in his second round, but yes, game wise, Sakib, uh, I'll I'll stop right here so you can get whatever you need in too. But uh, but game wise. Agassi is a is a unique case because he can because he stays inside the baseline, takes balls early, and he puts so much heat on the opponent that even though he's not a serving volley, it feels like you're playing against someone incredibly aggressive. 
No, he, he is. And then uh, it's, it's you know, time uh, gets the best of everyone. And Agassi himself said in the press conference that when he had to pull out of Key Biscayne this year, uh, he had to make, you know, he had to basically reevaluate and think what's going on. And uh, he didn't go to Australia, played a very limited schedule. Then after Key Biscayne, he, I believe, uh, just came to Wimbledon. And uh, yeah, and he made the announcement here two days yeah. before Wimbledon started. He that's the first time he made the announcement yeah. that he's going to retire at the end of the U.S. Open. Actually, he played one match at Queens, losing to Henman, and then yeah, this is it. And he definitely look doesn't look like you know the guy even who played uh, the U.S. Open final when he was in pain against Federer. But you know you could see the quality was there. But I I, I believe in the body betrays you after all these miles after all these. Uh, years uh, on the tour uh, it's such a grind and uh, and again you know as a fan you know I was always rooting for Agassi's opponents because you know that's how as a young boy you know I watched this but as you grow uh, slightly older and start appreciating the players you didn't root for you see their legacy and Agassi did something very special at Wimbledon I mean first time I think he lost to Lacan when he was a nobody he was what 17 then he didn't come for three years, and by the way, on those three years, he had become uh, one of the most popular players, you know, reaching French Open semis and final and, you know, two U.S. Open semis, was top five, I believe. And uh, was a popular notion that he's not coming to Wimbledon because they wouldn't allow him to wear the denim shorts, right? He was, he was just not ready for grass. And then he comes in 91, you know, uh, I think plays a five-setter uh, in the second round against... Uh, I believe a Canadian player, and then goes all the way to quarters till, and before he loses David Wheaton, and then the rest is history. You know, made made two finals, uh, was in more than few semis, lost a heartbreaker of a match, which I believe was his last best, last best chance in 2003. If you look in hindsight against Philippoussis, and uh, and I would just ask you, yeah, he would have loved this grass if he was given these coats against the likes of the Sampras's and Beckers and even Isevich, he would have had. Who knows? Maybe more than one Wimbledon. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a great point, Saki. What what would uh, how well would Agassi have done if he got to play his prime years in this grass rather than the grass back in the nineteen nineties? He would have been a formidable op- opponent because, um, um, well, look, we have to we have to put uh, Agassi's legacy on a pedestal here. We're to, you know, Connors has. 233 wins in the majors during the Open era. He holds the record, Connors does, with 233. Lendl is next with 222. And Agassi came into this Wimbledon at 220, two away from Lendl. So we're talking about Connors, Lendl, Agassi. Agassi's at number three. So after reaching the third round here, he's now tied with Lendl's record. He will need to win one match only at the U.S. Open. If he can win the first round, he will surpass Yvonne and become the second winningest men's player in the open air in terms of match wins at majors. Okay, so that, just absorb the, uh, the, the magnitude of that, of that accomplishment. He finishes his Wimbledon record 46-13. and 13. The only ones ahead of him are Sampras, Becker, Borg, Edberg, Connors, McEnroe, and Ivan Isevich. Not Lendl. In terms I, of total, I believe Lendl has won more matches. I could be wrong. Then forty-six. I don't. I, I, I don't think so. Hmm, okay. I, I don't think so. But uh, but we can look. But I don't think so. Those are the, those are the, the those are the seven that I found. 
But but you know I you can look it up if uh, I think Lendl has 147 or 48. But uh, yeah, continue. I mean this ah, is okay. Okay, I must have missed that one. But but hey, add Lendl to that group if he did. That still doesn't really you know change the point. Is that he's up there with a very elite group. His uh, his Wimbledon record and his performance at the majors are something to behold. So it's, you know we have to take the hat off to the guy. Yeah, Lendl had one forty eight. Yeah, I remember that. Okay, so. so let's add Lendl in there too. That's right. So we 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 got Sampras, Becker, Borg, Edberg, Connors, McEnroe, Lendl, and even Isevich. And now uh, and, and now we got uh, Agassi in that same group. That's that's just incredible Wimbledon group. Okay, you know. All right, so let me ask this a complex question because I know you won't dodge it, and it's more like a fan question. And uh, a lot of times, you know, we compare these statistics. Is two Wimbledons more than one? Yes, but does that mean the guy who won two was a better grass court player? Or does it also mean the guy who didn't win is less of a player than the guy who won one? So what I'm trying to throw in is a few names. If you compare an Ivan Lendl to Andre Agassi, Ivan Lendl was playing serve and volley, first, second serve, in the times of fast grass, white ball, then the ball change in 86 against the Beckers, the Cashes, the McEnroes. And, you know, he has 48 matches, five semis, two finals, zero titles. And then there's Stefan Edberg, who played three finals and won two titles. And then there's a Patrick Rafter, who did not win a Wimbledon title, but a lot of people think he's one of the best players not to win in the last few years. And then there's an Andre Agassi. So how do you stack up these careers? I mean, if you just take Wimbledon as a barometer, out of these four names, do Edberg's uh, two titles just put him at the top of the list? Or sometimes there's more than what meets the eye if you're looking at a player's record because what these stats are not telling who they played, who they dodged, and how good were they playing. And, you know, there's so many things. The rain comes. I know stats tell a full story, but... Someone like you is such a historian. How do you break those conversations? If you take those four names, okay. I think I think you you is somewhere in there. I heard the sentence. If you just take Wimbledon into consideration, and uh, if I if I were to take just Wimbledon into consideration, I would have to go with Edberg, uh, Becker, perhaps a hair ahead of uh, Agassi, because uh, because of, because because of the number of titles they they won. Now Agassi has a ton of wins. Yes, I, I agree, and uh, and he ha- and he did have to deal with Pete Sampras, arguably uh, the best grass court player of all times, probably is. Okay, and uh, so he did have Agassi did have to deal with him. Um, so those are you know we we need we need to take that with a grain of salt. But you know I know this is subjective and and I and and, um, and all judgmental. So it depends on the person. But in my view, I, I would I would put uh, Becker and Edberg a hair ahead of Agassi if we're just going to consider Wimbledon. Now with Lendl, it's a it's a little bit of a different story. In that case, I'm putting Agassi a hair ahead of Lendl because he he does have a title. Lendl never won a title. It's a shame that he never won a title. He should have won a title. He I thought he uh, he insisted on on trying to play serve and volley too much, perhaps. Uh, but but he could have he could have won it. He didn't. He I believe he won two Queens titles, and he desperately wanted to win Wimbledon. He couldn't. But yes, that title does matter because Agassi didn't win his title out of nowhere either. You know he had to beat Becker, John McEnroe, and Goran Ivanišević. That is not you know he, he didn't get to the final and beat Ivanišević out of nowhere. He didn't get lucky in the draw. 
that's, that's a, a bona fide. That's a murder, as Andrew would have yeah, said, right? Yeah, that's that's a that's a major that's a major title there without uh, you know having an easy draw or nothing. And 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 uh, so I think Agassi is a proven grass court player himself. Although he, you know, you would think, well, he's a baseline. He should no, no, it, it doesn't matter. He doesn't have a huge serve. Okay, that doesn't matter. You know, it, with with um, if if you're able to take the ball early on grass and and put heat on your opponent, make the ball get come back to to your opponent a half a second earlier than what other players do. You can be a good grass court player. You know, Jimmy Connors wasn't a, a consistent serve and volleyer. He did serve and volley a lot at Wimbledon because the grass was so fast back then. But uh, he didn't have a big serve. He uh, he wasn't a consistent serve and volleyer. But he also was the kind of guy who. Hit take took balls early, played aggressive, and and just constantly put the strain on the opponent. And he was able to get to have success at Wimbledon. Same with Agassi. But getting back to the Agassi Lendl um, uh, comparison, I would uh, I would give I would give the edge to Agassi by a hair. Okay, I agree with everything you said except that I respectfully disagree that Becker's slightly better. Becker's much better because Becker played seven finals in my view, and those finals are separated by a decade. So I think, and then oh, he, that's right. And he had you three. Have a good point. He had two more semis. So, but yeah. Again. Yes. No. No. You you make a good point. You're right. You are right. And uh, since we are in Agassi again, uh, uh, what is the most impressive thing that he's done uh, on on these lawns? If you look at these older matches, especially against Becker and you know even Ivanisevic, I, I found his ability to redirect a neutral rally, which Federer and Nadal these guys do routinely, but tennis was slightly different. And uh, maybe you can add more context to it. Sometimes when Becker was coming to the net or Mac, I guess he would just like on back foot, you know, it, it looked like he's hitting on the wrong foot and he's hitting a very clean pass on the backhand. And that was something unseen till that point. Maybe, you know, every generation has a player who changes how the balls hit. And he was like that, you know, once in a lifetime, once in a generation kind of a player who changed the way tennis is played, in my view. Yeah, game-wise, one thing that Agassi did better than anyone else is I think he's the only guy that I can remember uh, out of the top players. Now, there are some players who do try to do that, you know, within top 100 or maybe outside top 100 as, as, as part of their – it's in the pedigree of their game, but they never make it to top 10, top 15 at, uh, to, to Agassi, Agassi's level, top 5. But uh, what Agassi did better than any of these other guys at the top, the elite players, is – I think he's the only champion that I know of who can take a, a fearsome serve and who can, you know, position himself on the baseline or a little bit behind the baseline return. And then as the other, as the, as the big server tosses the ball, he actually steps inside the court and he returns the ball on the rise. Now it doesn't, it, it doesn't always work, you know, against Agassi, it didn't, against uh, Sampras, it didn't always work. You know, Sampras got the best of him sometimes with big serves. But we're talking about Sampras, who has maybe the best serve in, in the open air on the man's side. You know, it didn't always work against, say, Boris Becker, but it did work a lot. It worked most of the time. And and in in his opponents who had big serves all of a sudden found themselves fearing returns, something that they're not used to mentally or emotionally. Okay, and then and you're put on a spot where where you're with which you're not very comfortable or you don't feel at ease. And that affects the rest of your game. When you're a big server, that affects the rest of your game. So Agassi was able to do that kind of damage on uh, on his opponents, and and his unique style of game, where um, you know he's constantly rushing the op- the opponent, is is very unique. Not uh, not many people uh, 
play that style of game. You know, Sakib, at, uh, even now, this year, if you look at his match against uh, Seppi, uh, the second round that he won in this Wimbledon here, I mean, he's, he's, he found his rhythm at, at a certain point, I believe towards the end of the first set, and he played some phenomenal rallies uh, until the beginning of the third set. Now, granted, Seppi is a baseliner himself, so, uh, so you know, it allowed Agassi to, uh, to, to set up his game and, and, and run him around. But look how much running Seppi has to do in some of those points. And we're talking about Agassi at the age of 35 here, and uh, 36. And, uh, and, and you'll see Seppi just running ragged left and right, you know, with, uh, with Agassi just sitting inside the baseline, moving him around from one corner to another. And I think, Mert, you just hit upon something very... Uh, I think iconic. It's just the platform of Agassi and Gil Reyes and then, you know, all the work they put together. Agassi was a guy who would run out of gas. There was a lot of flash, but he couldn't just keep up with the Lendels, the Villanders, you know, even the Beckers in the early days when the match went the distance. And the Agassi that we've come to know in the last few years, the elder statesman of the tour, you know, how he just tires people out. It's just such a journey. I mean, it's such a privilege to see what he did out there. If you and of course, you know that, but if anyone who's, uh, who's younger listening to this podcast doesn't really know the beginnings of Agassi, you know, how he was just, you know, playing such aggressive brand of tennis, but lacked, you know, the punch to stay the distance. And now you see this Agassi who can pretty much stay as long as anyone till health got in the way. So it's pretty remarkable. Yes. And anybody, anybody who wants to visually see that should, should watch uh, one of the, like the, for example, first Agassi final against Jim Carrier at the French, and then watch his 2002 Australian Open final, uh, or his 1999 French Open final to see what you, the, you can visually see the difference. He's stronger, fitter, moving better, just a lot more confident out there. So yeah, I mean, again, uh, there's not enough context we can put on you know the Andre Agassi chapter. I mean, there's still an act left. Uh, the U.S. Open hopefully plays a couple more tune-ups leading up to that. But uh, yeah, what a what a what a terrific uh, career! And I would like to just add one personal anecdote. I was last year in Montreal to see the Rogers Cup, and I saw the Agassi Nadal semi-final. Uh, it was one of the best matches I've seen ever live. Not that I've seen a lot of matches live, but that's that may stay as one of the best matches ever because it was pretty electric. And Nadal won that in three. And uh, before the tournament. Before the match, they asked Nadal, are you going to play the legend? He said, yeah, I wanted to play him before he retires. And then they asked Agassi the same thing. The kid said this. And Agassi said, yeah, I wanted to play the kid before he retires. <laughs> so <laughs> so that, was, that was pretty sweet. And then uh, Nadal's the same guy, you know, who ended Agassi's Wimbledon career again, very respectful, uh, what we've learned of uh, Nadal. And, uh, yeah, it's a, such a class act. It was too, uh, totally uh, changing of the guard in that sense. Uh, Oh, yeah. I mean, and unfortunately, you know, I just mentioned the Seppi match. The fact that he tied uh, Landel's record and surpassed it uh, with, with uh, I mean, he tied Landel's record with that Seppi win should have, uh, should have been a part of the headlines and created noise. But instead, it got only a little fanfare because at the same time, Kendrick was beating, Kendrick was leading Nadal two sets to love and that match was going on at the same time and everyone's attention was turned towards that. But um, yeah, and it, it's a shame that... Uh, uh, Agassi actually didn't get the headlines necessary um, that day and the day sure. after. So let's move ahead in the draw and talk about some of the other big names. Uh, two-time finalist Andy Roddick, 
uh, you know, again, a huge grass court player. Again, a lot of people thought he would be the guy, uh, you know, who could uh, who could do some damage. And, you know, I think he was slated to play Nadal in the semis. Uh, he goes out to Britain's Andy Murray. So did you see that coming? Murray, again, is one of the more uh, talented youngsters. I was very impressed with his run in San Jose when he took took out the likes of Hewitt and Roddick back-to-back to win the title, but beating Roddick at Wimbledon, center court, I did not see that coming. I was switching between the World Cup football game, and then I saw Roddick is out. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that's right. But you were not the only one switching to the, to the World Cup game, even during the match. In fact, uh, uh, you know, it, it happened in the first set, England and Portugal, for those who, who, who are not into uh, football. Uh, World Cup match, England versus Portugal was uh, was at the same time as the Murray uh, uh, Roddick match. to watch Wayne Rooney. And the fir- <laughs> yeah, and 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 exactly, and, and it went into the penalties exactly when the Murray Roddick match went to the tiebreaker, and uh, Mur- and it was a terrific tiebreaker that probably didn't get watched because of that. Even by the people in the in the center court, you could see people in the center court. With earphones on, and they were ooh and ahing, you know, after after each penalty missed or made, while the tiebreaker was going on, it was the wildest scene. But um, but uh, but you know that first set, no. Uh, but to answer your question, Sakib, I didn't see that coming either. I didn't see Murray beating Roddick, but he did. In fact, he won the first set seven six after saving four set points. And uh, and Murray acknowledged. I mean, this guy's talented and. Uh, but uh, but Roddick will drop out of the top ten now for the first time since 2002 after this loss, and uh, but yeah I mean so his his game has his results or performance may have dropped but I still didn't see this coming but Murray is uh, impressive, and uh, I found it funny at the uh, at at a press conference that I heard earlier not after this match but I think it was a day or two earlier. He said he can do a lot of things, but he, but uh, but that he cannot put them all together yet. So, and I <laughs> and I agree with him. He can do a lot of things. I mean, this guy's got incredible court sense. He seems to know where the ball is coming, but before the opponent makes contact with the ball, he's got good touch. He's got angles. He can drop shot. Uh, his, his his game is quite impressive to watch. For those who haven't seen him play, you really should watch him the next time. Uh, the next time he's on, because uh, he's he's quite something. He does have a he does though. Sakib have a tendency to sometimes run out of gas. He, you know, against in Barcelona against Fair, for example, he ran out of gas, and and I believe at Roland Garros against Monfils also he ran out of gas and he lost that match. But uh, but you know, I mean, physical shape or endurance is something you can build. He's still very young. Yeah, he is. I mean, I, I really liked his backhand and uh, just, uh, l- like you said, a lot of work to be done. But yeah, this was uh, kind of a st- oh, stellar. his backhand yeah. is great. And even yes. in the Roddick match, there were yeah. some rallies where Roddick is hitting these huge forehands and Murray's no Nadal, but he has this unbelievable defense uh, with a sliced backhand, which puts the rally into neutral mode, which again is the norm in tennis now. Uh, you know, players have unbelievable defensive abilities, and then Roddick couldn't believe Murray's foot speed. Then there's a rally. I think he, uh, I think, yeah, there was, it was a set point, uh, a break point down, and then Murray comes back. I think uh, and just hits a forehand passing shot when he's pretty much uh, on the on the dire straits in the rally. So yeah, it's pretty impressive, and. 
Yeah, I mean, his back, his, one thing about his backhand, too, he, he can do a last-second wrist flick and make, or make a backhand look like he's going to hit a winner down the line or a flat hit down the line, and then with a last-second wrist flick, can end up hitting a backhand angle topspin shot. I mean, you don't see it coming, and same with the drop shots. So, yeah, he's quite I'm talking he's, about he's good backhands, and Marko Bagdadis and Novak Djokovic have pretty amazing backhands too and these are other two young names that have done some major rounds Djokovic making uh, a quarterfinal the Roland Garros taking out Monfils before retiring against Nadal uh, so the the next brigade is here because the Hewitts and the Safins are kind of not there uh, as they were expected to be uh, and then uh, you have all these younger guys including Tomas Burdick so I don't know unpack which one uh, these three. I would say Novak Djokovic is definitely the man I would like to hear your views on. Yes, no, he's, a, he's, he's another fast riser, 19-year-old from Serbia. And uh, you have to watch out uh, for him because he's rising quite fast in his, in, in, his, in his early years, very early. He played his first main draw uh, in the majors last year at the Australian Open. And already this year, he reached the quarters at Roland Garros and was only stopped here at Wimbledon, Mario Ancic by by Ancic in the fourth round in a very close match. I mean, he, he led the Ancic two sets to one in the fourth set, and on Ancic's serve in the fourth set at four all, on Ancic's serve he had love thirty, and then he had a game he had a break point at thirty forty to go up and serve for the match. Uh, now Ancic came up with the goods in those points. You know, he, the, the, Novak didn't uh, didn't really choke it. Uh, Ancic came up with the goods, so experience paid off there for Ancic. And you know, when I say experience, Ancic is 22 year old, 22 years old himself. But he's, but uh, but he has been, you know, he he has played uh, more in the advanced stages of tournaments than uh, than uh, than Djokovic has. So you know, I just mentioned. Uh, I mean, Djokovic was not even top 100 a year ago, and now he's in inside the top 40, and he's got. Uh, you know, the, the, he's, he's got late showings in, in, in the majors now. So, yes, that's someone you have to watch out. And he's a fiery uh, character. I mean, he showed a lot of emotion out there. Uh, I remember yes. watching that match you mentioned when he made his main draw debut. I was in India last year and saw him play Marat Safin in the first round of Australia. And he was a young guy. And you could see, like, uh, they both were wearing similar kits. And Safin got the better of him in a heartbeat. And now if you look at a year and a half later, I mean, Djokovic is quite the established player. He's, I think... He'll be ranked, I think, close to, I think, top 32. He might be even seated for New York, I think, uh, the way things are going. Yes, he will be an established top 50 player. But, but I, think, I think when we're mentioning these names, you know, like Andy Murray, uh, Mar- Novak Djokovic, uh, Maria Ancic is another one. Uh, Thomas Burdick, you mentioned them. Marcos Bagdatis. Marcos Bagdatis is 21 years old. And Burdick is 20. Ancic is 22. Uh, these guys, uh, you know, when I'm mentioning these guys, I'm looking at more than established top 30 players. I'm looking at uh, these guys have the potential to to be top 10, top five. Gasquet is there challenge. too. Yeah, Gasquet is there too. That's right. There's Gasquet also, the French guy. And uh, and you know, these guys have the have the potential. And then, like just like you said, there's uh, you know the 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 other guys like Hewitt, Roddick, and Suffin. So there's a very good uh, group of players if if it all works out. And that is why. It is, uh, it, it is so important for, you know, to come back to what we talked about in the beginning, it is so important to have an established rivalry at the very top, which now Federer and Nadal have 
which will be something to shoot for for these guys. And 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 I'd, I'll be curious to see who will be the first one to challenge, you know, the big two uh, at the top uh, from from these guys. We will uh, we will we will wait and see. Uh, it's it, it's hard to say anything now. You know, Ancic looks very good. He's got a good serve, good game. You know, of course, uh, there, there's again, Burdich has a big game. He's a young guy. He's got a big game, very physically uh, strong. But you know, there are other factors. You know, are these guys mentally tough enough? Do you like the enough? comparison are... with Safin for Burdich? Does John Wertheim keeps calling him Safin Junior? Uh, I don't know about that. So Safin, uh, I think Burdich, from what I've seen at least so far, is more of a mechanical player, a, a baseline player, relies on power a lot. Whereas Safin had the, a whole arsenal of shots that that he can hit, and he's he's got uh, yeah, I mean Safin, Safin can can pull a lot of tricks out of his hat, and and so far I'm seeing Burdich as promises as he is, I'm seeing Burdich as a, as a as a just a hard hitting baseliner, you know. But he's young, he's 20, so you know we will see. He's the guy who defeated for those who may not know, he's the guy who defeated Roger Federer two years ago. At the Olympics, when Federer was the top seed and Burdich was 18 years old, uh, he he has not reached the quarterfinals in a major yet, but he has won two titles, and one of them was a Master Series title. So, and he's a top 20 player already. You see, like I said, he's 20. Some someone to definitely watch. I just don't know which one of these guys will be able to put together the whole package to 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 rise up and challenge Federer and Nadal at the top. Yeah, and, and that just puts you know Nadal's uh, game in perspective. That all these guys are same age as Nadal, and Nadal's already clearly sitting at world number two, the clear challenger to Roger Federer. When we thought, well, yeah, that's the, this, this the, the, that's another thing. I mean, that's that's what this Wimbledon established. You know, the, the, when I, when when we said that uh, now we have an established bona fide uh, super rivalry at the top. That, that's what this Wimbledon established. That. Roger, Roger actually has something to say in the rivalry because he, he didn't lose to him on grass either. Now he's got something to say. And that uh, Rafa is now right there behind uh, Roger to claim the number one spot. But will he? Will, we don't know. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Roger keeps getting better, but some of his rivals, like I mentioned, uh, Roddick, you know, as again, will be out of top ten. Hewitt was seated eight, lost to Baghdadis. Uh What's next for them? I mean, uh, are, are we writing them off or it's too early? They have a lot of years left. And Safin, you know, who came back earlier from knee troubles of 2005, doesn't look like the same guy. He's not moving uh, like he, he was able to, and he's lost quite a few matches this year from winning position. So do you want to unpack uh, Hewitt and Roddick for the listeners? I mean, what's next for these guys? It's going to be a little bit harder for Hewitt to, to come back to the top level than it, than it may be for Roddick and uh, Safin. Because Roddick and Safin have... Uh, I mean, Safin still won uh, uh, major just recently. You know, he's not that far back. So he, he's... And, and plus, he's got the game to where he can adjust uh, certain shortcomings that he may have physically and learn to live with them. And still, he can still adjust his game and, uh, and, and do very well and challenge the top spot. And Roddick's got, you know, big serve and a big forehand... And a player like that can have two or three bad years and then come back and resurface as, as a top power again. But for Leighton Hewitt, it's going to be a little bit harder because he, he's more of a baseline hassler, you know, a, a, a retriever, a scramble, so to speak. He, he, uh, his driving force is, 
his, uh, his motivation on the court, but he doesn't really have any big weapons. In fact, if you watched him carefully the last couple of years, he's trying to do more with his serve. He's trying to do more with his forehand. But uh, when you've, uh, you know, when you've risen to the top using your plan A and that plan A serves you well on fast services, surfaces, it's very hard to now convince yourself that you can make a major adjustment like that in your game and do well. So it's going to be harder for Hewitt because other players have now figured out ways to beat him and he doesn't really have one big weapon to, to, uh, to hurt his opponents with. So I would put the chances of Safin or Roddick coming back to the top and challenging the top a little bit higher than Hewitt's. Yeah, and I would say maybe not at Wimbledon, but uh, baseliners like uh, Nikolai Davidenko and Fernando Gonzalez will have a lot of say in the future too, the way they unpack their ground games. It's, uh, yeah, the socket, you know, you just, you just hit on something very, very interesting here. Like the, 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 and Gonzalez goes perfectly with what I was trying to say. A guy like Gonzalez can be on and make a, and make a major upset or, or do very well at a tournament if his shots are on because he's got big shots. And he's got incredible forehand and backhand on, on, uh, when he's on. And he can be on two or three matches in a row. This is not a guy who will be on for one match and disappear. Versus a guy like Hewitt, who may be a lot more consistent, but uh, he's going to have a tough time challenging the top. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. But I, but you're, you, when you brought up Gonzalez, it fit perfectly with no, what we were trying to say. That's totally fine. So I think we covered quite, quite a lot here in terms of uh, the men's edition. Now let's talk about the non-tennis. Uh, are there any tidbits you want to... Uh, share uh, yeah uh, well you know i don't know if uh, maybe i'm the maybe i'm the only one who worries about this or maybe i'm the only one who finds this silly i don't know because i i had when i mentioned it to a couple of friends of mine who are in the in the in the in the in the game they say that it's fun that it's this way i don't think it's fun i'm talking about parents and coaches of both players sitting in the same box I think that's that's a tradition at Wimbledon that needs to be axed uh, and and just just done with. I mean, it, it's it's a, it's horrible to have to sit, you know, if I'm if I'm relative or a fan or a coach of a player, and I'm sitting side by side with four or five of relatives or coaching team of a player, and right behind me are sitting four or five relatives or coaches of the opposing player. Or me sitting behind them doesn't matter who's in front, who's behind. Personally, I think being in front is even worse. But okay, but that that's just that's just really really bad. Uh, I don't know. I don't know where that tradition came from. I mean, you can't really show emotions. You can't really talk. In, you know, nobody's supposed to talk loud in the stadium. I know in the center court, but you can you know talk on a low voice. Yeah. Whereas when you ha- when you're sitting right behind them or right in front of them, you can't even do that. You have to kind of whisper into the e- ear. It's just a really uncomfortable situation. I, I feel, I personally feel super uncomfortable watching uh, uh, watching them on screen. I don't know when that. Uh, I hope that tradition disappears soon. They they need to sit separately. Yeah, that uh, I I, could, I, <laughs> I, mean, I don't I, I couldn't I disagree I there. It yeah. out of nowhere, but I saw it again. I, I I saw it in the 2001 final when Ivan Isevich played Rafter, and how Goran's dad was trying to hold back. That, that's that's just got to be horrendous. Yeah. Yeah, I remember the same one in '95 semis, uh, one of my favorite matches, when Becker beats Agassi after all these years, and Barbara Becker is so happy, but then the next minute she's just absorbing the moment. But I guess. 
she knew Brooke Shields, who was Agassiz's uh, fiance then, and then they exchanged pleasantries. So that's a pretty tough spot to be, I'm sure. You know, either way, if you don't like someone or if you like yeah. someone. Because did it, did it look? I don't remember that, but do you you remember it? So did it look fake? You know, I mean, I, I think so, if you're if you're if the player you're with loses a very tough yeah, I, match, think, I would I would find it hard to turn and smile. Exactly, I, I think that's the, that's the again. I, I don't know like how the how the women knew each other they, because Barbara was also I think uh, from from the entertainment industry, and uh, so yeah, I don't want to be Brooke Shields at that time. I don't want to be exchanging pleasantries when. Her man was up six two four one, and now you know they'll be talking about the loss. <laughs> and what if what if what if they didn't like each other? I mean, obviously those two were okay, but what if you're sitting behind or in front of someone that you just cannot stand, or you've had an you've had an argument? No, actually, you are you are onto something. You are onto something else. U.S. Open, there was a lot of animosity after this match. Again, you know, we didn't want to discuss Wimbledon '95, but it finds its way. So Becker, after beating Agassi, Agassi was all, I think. Uh, pleasantries for Becker in the press and Becker comes back and says Wimbledon is run by Nike they promote their players he was taking a shot at Agassi and then things turned really and even in Agassi's book it was called the revenge match and by the time they played against the semi-final in the US Open and thankfully the yeah. camps were sitting at the opposite ends uh, you know Becker even accused Agassi for getting coaching with Perry Rogers and Brad Gilbert and there was like very anim- anim- uh, you know, animosity and the scenes were that, that was the coldest handshake I've ever seen Agassi barely gave his hand at the end Oh, that's right. I do remember that. But 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 <laughs> but anyway, I hope Wimbledon just does it. I, I know Wimbledon loves its traditions, but that's just a silly tradition. That that that, that needs to disappear. I'm sorry. Is, is there anything else? Uh, that's uh, well, you know, there's there 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 was a uh, Hawkeye used as trial on the outside course this year, and um, and um, and starting 2007 next year, it looks like it will be officially used. At, at Wimbledon, they haven't made an announcement yet, but I know that the 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 use of it in the outside course was a trial of some sort. So I'm, I'm you know, and and the the All England Club chief executive uh, Richie Ian Richie confirmed it, confirmed that they were using it as a trial. So I'm actually expecting some sort of announcement that uh, Hawkeye will become official starting 2007 next year. Um, and there's also, you know, Wimbledon has a facelifting project for the Santa Court that begins its three-year plan now. Uh, now that the, this year's tournament is over, at next year's 2007 championships, uh, the most obvious evidence of the rebuilding will be that the stadium has no roof on it at all. You know, they're, they're, because they eventually want to build a roof, but uh, the Santa Court right now has like a half roof type of thing on it, and that will not be there at all. Uh, the two by 2008, the fixed element of the new roof will be completed, and then by 2009, the plan is that the retractable roof will be ready to roll into place whenever it rains. So, kind of a new, uh, new uh, era starting at uh, at Wimbledon, you know, with the, with the roof, or, or or will start in a few years. Yeah, that'll be. They 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 are starting the facelifting project uh, now that the tournament is over. Yeah, that'll be quite the historical facelift because Wimbledon something you know is not so synonymous with change and uh, a good thing they are you know making these changes and let's see uh, how how that shapes up. Yeah, and there's a and should we should we even mention the streaker and the and the activist uh, father rights the the two father rights campaigners who slipped into the center court on. Successive days, but we're taking off quickly. Yeah, might as Let's well not now. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, though that, that's kind of a side note. But um, 
yeah, these are the uh, these are the things that I thought were were um, just some side notes that I could throw at you. All right, so Mark, we are back in 2020. Uh, this was uh, quite the experience. Hopefully, everybody who tunes in, uh, either it's a trip down memory lane, or if you were too young, uh, I think that's probably you've seen the footage of the match. But uh, we, I hope we provided some context in the rivalry and the era that was 2006. So yeah, and you can find for for the listeners, Saki, they can find the uh, the, the final. Uh, on uh, online if they want to and uh, and what it turned out you know at the time we didn't know but it did turn out to be a bookend final in other words you know when Roger beat Rafa in that 2006 Wimbledon final combined with the 2006 French Open final just like we mentioned in the prologue uh, it turned out to be a bookend uh, to you know that's the that's the that's the beginning the the so-called the the, the bona fide beginning of their rivalry that year and that match at Wimbledon, and uh, it's still going today. You know we, they just played a semi-final in 2019. So yeah, it's yeah. quite remarkable if you didn't know what's coming. You know how and then uh, of course Novak Djokovic has a lot to say uh, currently how uh, the Grand Slam race is shaping up and overall. Tennis greatness is discussed, and Andy Murray had his cameo, which was worthy. So, yeah, this is Sake Mali and Murta Tunga thanking you for listening to this episode of Tennis with an Accent. I hope you enjoyed this edition. Feel free to let us know if you didn't, because we plan to do one more for the U.S. Open. Uh, and also, on behalf of Matt Zemek, uh, this wraps up our Wimbledon series. Uh, we'll be back with another episode in a week's time. Uh, it's bye for now from Tennis with an Accent. Yeah.